Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you very much for being here tonight. And uh, this is really uh, a pleasure. I've um, been at NYU Abu Dhabi for, um, I guess this is starting my sixth year. And for a chunk of the time that I've been here, uh, I've not just been a literature professor, but I was running a literature program. And I've always har sort of harbored the fantasy of being able to get Mohsen Hamid here on campus, uh, uh, not just to talk to our students, which he'll have the opportunity to do, to do tomorrow. If you, do, if you aren't aware of this, uh, every one of our 368 incoming freshmen uh, read Exit West over the summer. It was their first homework assignment. And they got here and had, at least my group, had very excited conversations about it when they arrived. Uh, and, that's, and so he'll be able to have some conversations with them tomorrow about that. But we also wanted to be able to put him in uh, contact with his public, um, you. So thank you, for, thank you for coming out tonight. Um, I don't think he needs, I need, a, I need an introduction because you don't know who I am. I, you're, you're here, obviously, because Mohsen Ham does not need an introduction. But uh, many of you have probably read more than one of his novels. Um, Moth Smoke, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia, which is one of my favorite novel titles of all time, <laughs> uh, or the, the, the latest novel just published this year, Exit West. Um, I'm just curious to know, you can, well, maybe I shouldn't ask you. I would ask how many of you have read Exit West? Okay, this is great. I, I, I would like to spend a little bit of time tonight asking some specific questions about it. So. A lot of you are going to benefit from that. But I think those of you who haven't, I'll try not to include any spoilers. We won't talk about the last chapter. <laughs> you can ask about it privately later. <laughs> uh, we, we had a little bit of time for conversation earlier, and I um, sort of deepened my knowledge of uh, uh, the biography, including the fact that he spent the first, uh, some of the first years of his life living on the campus at Stanford University something I didn't know before today. Um, moving back to uh, Pakistan, uh, going to uh, the East Coast of the United States in the late 80s to be a student for, I guess, a student and a professional in uh, Princeton and Cambridge and New York from 88 or 89 till around 2001. Yep. And he left, uh, he left Manhattan in 2001 uh, a month before 9-11, which is exactly when I moved to Manhattan. <laughs> so we uh, passed like ships in the night. Uh, and uh, I, I think, uh, and then after, after spending some time in London, he's returned to Lahore where he lives now and spends part of his uh, year in other places, but is, is, is based in, in his home city of Lahore. Um, and I was, I was just kind of struck um, by a few things about uh, Exit West that I wanted to ask you about. I, I don't want to make them biographical. So the fact that I was just talking about your life makes it seem kind of biographical. But maybe I could start with the fact that um, people who are from Lahore, who I've talked to, who've read Exit West, automatically assume that the book is set in Lahore. But you very carefully choose not to name the city that your characters live in. 
In fact, almost nothing has uh, proper nouns you know, it, that, are, that are recognizable from our, our world, except for these two protagonists. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you decided that this city would not quite be Lahore, and how you decided that these characters would be the only real proper names that uh, we're going to encounter. And how did these characters emerge from that uh, sort of liminal city that you were developing? Um, uh, well, first of all, thank you for that introduction, Brian, and, and thank you to Philip and, uh, and to NYU for having me, and thank you to all of you for coming out this evening. Um, um, it's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, my first visit, first proper visit to Abu Dhabi. Um, uh, my sister went to NYU in, in New York, so she's particularly pleased uh, that I'm, I'm here. He's already uh, got it down that you say NYU in New York. Uh, yeah. <laughs> The other NYU. <laughs> That's right. As far as the city in the novel and, and the semi-namelessness in the novel, uh, there's a lot of different things uh, you know, going on. In, in terms of the city, when I started writing this book, uh, I, uh, I was motivated by many different things. One is my own life. I've moved so many times and have become a serial uh, migrant. Um, and for a while, I thought that that made me different from other people. And then I realized that actually um, everybody is in a, as a migrant in their own way. And in fact, it's a sort of connection to people to, to move around so much. Um, and uh, but, but part of the, and part of the novel, of course, came from the intensifying rhetoric of sort of anti-migrant politics, you know, all over the world, not just in America or in Europe. Uh, you know, we see um, in, in Myanmar the uh, notion that the Rohingya are migrants, and we see in Pakistan a backlash against Afghan refugees. We see um, in South Africa, you know, a backlash against migrants from other parts of Africa. So there's a global anti-migrant rhetoric, which, which I guess I take it a little bit personally as somebody who's, who's pretty much a migrant. But a big part of the, uh, uh, the reason for writing this novel, or some of the impulses that, that gave birth to this novel, um, also have to do with uh, living in Lahore, Pakistan, and having this sort of slight uh, nightmare, um, you know, what if, terrible things were to happen here. And, and it's not inconceivable. Um, uh, Damascus was, until recently, a fairly peaceful city. Um, you know, New Orleans was overwhelmed by uh, water. Houston is underwater today. Um, Sarajevo was a cosmopolitan town. We've seen what's happened to so many places. And so I think many of us, perhaps most of us who live in big cities around the world, have some slight apprehension of a coming catastrophe. But in Lahore, it's maybe a little bit stronger than in some other places because there are constant reminders of it, you know, the occasional bomb blast or um, someone's friend who's caught up and injured or killed or, or somebody you actually know. And, uh, and so that fear of Lahore sort of hurtling over the abyss um, and what would happen if one had to leave, and what about one's parents and friends and the whole context, uh, was a big part of why um, I wrote Exit West. And 
And so in that sense, uh, this nameless city comes from a personal feeling that I have in Lahore sometimes. I don't think this will happen to Lahore. I hope it will never happen to Lahore. But it's a fear. And so I wanted to explore that. Uh, at the same time, I couldn't bring myself to write a novel about Lahore's descent, you know, sort of into the apocalypse. Uh, partly because in Pakistan, there's so much rhetoric about Pakistan is going to, you know, go down the drain and Pakistan will collapse. And I don't think that's going to happen, actually. I think it's much more likely than not that Pakistan will not uh, collapse in that way. Um, and so I didn't want to write yet another story of Pakistan and Lahore's collapse. But, but more than perhaps either of those things is, uh, uh, I've, since I moved back to Lahore about a decade ago, um, I've started thinking that, you know, so often we talk about New York or London or Paris and we imagine that we're talking about, you know, we say the city and we imagine this is the universal city, that, that you know, the, uh, the events that take place in New York or London or Paris are archetypal events that are true of all cities and all cities partake of a kind of New Yorkness. Um, uh, and, and, and I started to wonder um, and increasingly believe that perhaps Lahore was as much or in fact more like most large cities on planet Earth today than New York or London or Paris are. Because if I go to Sao Paulo or if I go to Bangkok or if I go to Johannesburg, in many ways I'm more reminded of Lahore than I am of New York or London. And that made me think that you know maybe um, Lahore has uh, equal claim to being the universal city. That in fact, um, if any place has a claim to being universal, all places have that claim equally. And so, and so the idea of this nameless city being every city, but modeled upon Lahore, felt to me appropriate because I think um, uh, when we imagine what it is to live in the city, which we do very often, like the life in the city today is like this, in a modern city. I think we can learn as much from Lahore as we can from other places. And, and uh, after writing this and traveling around the world and meeting people who come from Syria or, or who are in Italy and you know, are awaiting the economic apocalypse of the end of the euro or in, in Greece where that apocalypse has sort of already come, or in New York City, shell-shocked after the election of Donald Trump or London after Brexit, mm -hmm. You know, many people in big cities can imagine terrible things befalling their big cities. In fact, it seems to be almost the default setting of living in a big city. And so, and so um, this uh, nameless Lahore was a way to have this universal city. And, and the last thing I'll say, uh, it's a very long answer, but uh, it's a very important question, um, is it has to do with how I think novels work. Um, I think. Oh, you're jumping ahead. I was going no, to go from the particular to the general. Let's stop. Let's stop. No, no. I want to hear how you think novels no, work. No, no, no. If you, if you preempt my question. No, no. We can, we can wait for the question. Think of also. Another one later. No, we can wait for the question. Also, but I, I, I was just going to say that you know. Um, <laughs> how I, do novels work? I tend to write short novels, and um, and I do that for a reason. And and the namelessness in this uh, novel, almost namelessness, only two names, of two characters anyway. Um, uh, which is more than my last novel, How to Get Filtrationizing Asia, which has literally no names except for Asia. Uh, they're only continent names. No character, no religion, no city has a name. 
Um, now, the reason for this is, I think that um, that actually a novel uh, is is an experience that has two different components. There's a thing that a writer writes, which is really half of a novel. And then there's what happens when each individual reads it, which is the other half of the novel. And a novel is an, is an invitation for readers to sort of engage in their own imaginative, creative process. You know, uh, just like when you're dancing with somebody, they're offering an invitation to dance with them. They're not determining your dance. Their dance isn't the entirety of the dance. It's just something that you're reacting to. And together, what happens is the dance. And the same thing with a novel. And, and so if that's the case, and if novels are an invitation to co-create, then I think leaving space for the co-creation is important. So um, you know, if a, if, a, if a mother dies and she has the name of my mother, um, that's something very different than if, a, if she's just called mother and what you might do with that. Um, if a city is named, it does something very different than if it's just the city. Because then it can begin to take on your associations with that word, city, you know, mother, et cetera. And so partly the namelessness is an invitation to the reader to make of it what they will and bring themselves to it. So how then did you realize that these two characters were going to have names? <laughs> but, but, but also, the, the, the other question that goes along with this speaks, I think, to what you're saying about the history of novels or how novels work. You, you, could you think of the history of the, I mean, you think of the history of the novel from the tale of Genji to, you know, um, Robinson Crusoe, right? I mean, as, as a form that's attached to a person. And so many novels say in the 18th, 19th century just have the name as a of the person, of the protagonist, as the title of the novel. And you have a dual protagonist. It's a couple. It's not a single protagonist. And they do have names, but this book's not called uh, Said and Nadia. Uh, and the metaphor that you just used about a dance, I said I wasn't going to say anything about the, uh, well, no spoilers. It's not a spoiler, but in the last chapter, the metaphor of the dance is used to talk about the relationship between these characters. Uh, and I, and I wonder then, so how, do, how, how did it emerge that this is a book about two people dancing who have names? <laughs> well, um, to answer that, I have to talk a little bit about um, my, my novels up to this one. So my first novel, Moth Smoke, um, uh, if, I don't know, if maybe some of you have read it. I think one person had a very water damage or possibly water, some liquid. These things happen it. in Abu Dhabi. You might have just left it on a shelf when you went away for summer vacation. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and it came back. You know, but it looked very moth smoky and when it was finished. It was a devastated sort of, you know, uh, uh, book. But Moth Smoke was a novel, uh, is a novel uh, that um, has many different characters speaking. There's sort of a, you, the reader, are cast as the judge of this sort of surreal trial that takes as a starting point the trial of the historical finger, Darashiko, uh, by his victorious brother, Aurangzeb, when they were fighting for control over the Mughal Empire. Um, but set in late 1990s Pakistan, around the time of the nuclear test, where Darashiko is uh, now a pot-smoking uh, uh, heroin addict and uh, has fallen in love with his best friend's wife, who's Aurangzeb's uh, wife. And, um, and you, the reader, are positioned in that book as the judge of this trial. Mm -hmm. And so the different mm -hmm. characters will tell you about themselves, yeah. what happens to them. 
you can receive briefs on subjects like the role air conditioning has played in the lives of everybody in the book, and um, they're sort of random aside. Um, in that novel, there was a frame, which is the reader is, is playing a kind of pretend judge mm -hmm. in a surreal trial. Now, it doesn't mean the reader actually is a judge in a surreal trial, but the novel was written um, uh, with that frame. In other words, you don't have to walk into a house from its front door, but, it needs, but an architect needs to imagine that there's a front door you walk into to give some sort of basis for building the house. That was Maud Smoke. And Maud Smoke was um, how you, the reader, have to try to judge this situation with competing contradictory mm -hmm. information and you know, your own instincts. And the Rotten Fundamentalist, my second novel, sort of boiled that down to a sort of an essence, which was, it's also in a way about judging, but in the Rotten Fundamentalist, you, uh, you again appear, because in Moth Smoke, you as the reader judging this thing, and Rotten Fundamentalist, this American, presumably American character, meets this bearded Pakistani guy in a bazaar in Lahore, and the Pakistani starts talking to you, presumably the American, but also the reader like a one-man play. And you only get half of a conversation, and you have to figure out, what do you make of this? Is this true? What's going on? Mm -hmm. How do you judge when you only can hear half of a conversation? And so um, your interpretation and your reaction, um, in a way, is, is, is you, the reader, being forced to play a kind of character role because half of the novel is missing. Um, whatever you says never gets heard. And so that was very much about the reader you know, interpreting and creating and judging. And then in How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia, my third novel, which is a novel which has no names, um, in that novel, it is addressed to you, the reader, who has come to this self-help book that will help you get filthy rich in rising Asia. Um, but you are also the protagonist, this young boy who grows up and becomes an old man who falls in love, lives an entire life. Um, in these pages, and perhaps is initially inclined towards getting filthy rich in rising Asia, but the book is perhaps about something else, uh, or else as well. And in that novel, that novel um, actually quite explicitly talks about the way in which you know reader and writer, you and um, I, are making this story. Um, that uh, that the implicit notion that there's a reader being talked to, and a reader who's making this stuff, um, that reader actually enters into the book. And there's a direct you know, conversation between these two. It's all about how you interpret it. And are you a character when you're reading a book? Or are you a reader? Or are you both? And what's the writer? And is the writer? Um, so all of that, then, is the, is the background for, um, for this book and, uh, and, and the notion of um, you know, how you are uh, creating uh, this story. Um, in Exit West, in a way, I, I haven't tried to, unlike all my previous books, explicitly say you to the reader and say, you know, you are doing this and I'm doing this and let's talk about what we're doing. Um, in some ways, it, it tries to be more old-fashioned, I guess. It sort of says, look, this is a story. And, um, and it's the first of my novels which didn't, doesn't explicitly take as a starting point, unlike the first three. The first three all say, well, here's a story, and here's a frame for that story. And the two things are slightly skew. You know, 
believe it or not, maybe it's true, maybe it isn't. You, whatever you make of it is what you make of it. In Exit West, um, weirdly enough for me, I've just sort of tried to say what I mean. So Exit West is the first book that I tried to write with its own like decoder ring built into it. <laughs> it wasn't trying to say, okay, here's this strange structure, you are figuring out what's going on. Although hopefully the previous novels doesn't feel straight, it feels sort of fun, but um, it's not meant to be like this task that you have to figure out, but it's just built in a sort of way. But this book um, is sort of you know, straight up just saying what it means, and it's sort of trying to be a story, which doesn't mean the reader doesn't have to interpret, the reader does. But in and, the, and the reader really needs to reread. Yes. I mean, the, the reader encounters things at the beginning of the book that you won't understand unless you finish the book and you come back and read it again. Yeah, actually, so. and, and that's the benefit of a small book, is that you can, read it, you, know, you can read it more than once. But I remember my father-in-law, who passed away a year ago, he once said to me, he, he read um, uh, How to Get Filthy in Rising Age, and he said, you're, you're, you're basically a storyteller, right? That's what you do, <laughs> you tell stories. And, I, and it's so strange because that was actually, weirdly enough in that moment, a kind of revelation for me. I was thinking, you know, actually I, I'm like an architect, I build these things, and I'm like a bricklayer, I make these sentences, and I build these chapters, and I construct these things. And, and when he said, I said, yeah, you're right, I mean, I am, that's what I basically do for a living, is I, I make stories. And so this novel was, was a, in a way, a return to that informed by how I think novels work and how I think the reader-writer relationship can work and lots of things. But I, I feel that um, today, so many people, I mean, the novel is not the dominant storytelling form of our time. And so um, instead of trying to build a novel um, which uh, intentionally says, hey, you can't trust this, make of it what you will, I thought I'd try to build a novel which says, look, I'm going to do my best to guide you through this book. What you make of it is up to you. But it's not playing really any tricks on you as such. It's going to try to be straight. Sort which of, itself, until you realize that people are like ducking through doors yes. and popping out on the yeah. beach yeah. hundreds yes. of miles away yes. <laughs> with, with no explanation. And the characters just go, hmm, OK. Yeah. yeah. That's right. I mean, we should, I should probably, uh, since you, know, you aren't, haven't read this book. So, so Exit West basically is a novel about, say, the Nadia, as you've said, who are in a city which is um, on the verge of a kind of catastrophe. Some sort of extremists are about to take control, and things are falling apart quickly. And many cities within a 1,000 miles of here have experienced something just like that, or uh, like that. Um, and say the Nadia meet, they're very different. They begin a kind of romance, and the city begins to uh, collapse. Um, now, as, as you just said, Brian, the, the thing about this novel, which is slightly different from what we're used to, is that it comes, the story occurs in a moment where these doors, uh, portals, have begun to appear. And if you step through one, for example, let's say there was a door there instead of that green room back there, there's a, there'd be a black kind of rectangle. And if you were to push yourself through that space, you would emerge somewhere else, New York, Tokyo, Sydney, who knows, um, a beach. In Dubai. In Dubai, yes, in Dubai and in Mykonos, in Greece. And, um, and so, yes. It's that, actually a hotel in Dubai. Yeah, and then they stumble out onto the beach. Uh, uh, the security cameras are watching them the whole time. And, and, 
And so that's a little bit different from you know how we normally think of the world. Uh, but um, uh, yeah. I want to come back to the portals, because that's definitely a feature of this book that most people, if you say, did you read Exo West, people are going to say this portal thing, right? Yeah, I, well, this is uh, the cover, as you can see, has a sort of <laughs> door on it. I, 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 before, before letting go of uh, say Nadia, I just thought, I mean, it's the, they're both very compelling characters. They're very, you know, obviously contrasting characters, and yet they're kind of an opposites attract way. They do have some things in common, some pleasures that they like to enjoy together, and just sort of the, a sense of, you know, any young people trying to make space for getting to know each other. And so, uh, but then this um, sort of apocalyptic moment that you're talking about throws them sort of fast forwards their relationship, which is the burden of their relationship, right? They were thrown together too quickly. And they have to, that's what they have to live with as they travel through magic portals that take them to different parts of the world, uh, which, is, which is a lot. That's a lot for that couple to handle. Um, I, I was, when you were recounting you know, the frame stories and the structures of your other novels, I was struck by how frequently you, the, the reader, uh, is the other character, right? That's the other part of the dance. And yet here we get this interesting thing where both of these characters are here. And I don't know about other people's experience, but in, in my experience, I strongly identified with one of those characters. I've talked to other people who identify with both of them and others who identify with neither of them. But, but I very strongly identified with one of those characters. If, you, if I had to take a personality test and fill out all the circles, it would say, oh, you're exactly like Nadia. I'm, not, I'm Nadia. I'm, not, I'm a Nadia character. I don't ride a motorcycle, but I wish I did. And, uh, and, 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 the, and so there's a way in which the, the reader is not just peeking in on the lives of someone else somewhere else and trying to empathize or imagine or realize what that person's life must be like, but there are all these moments of recognition where uh, almost anyone could identify with one or the other of these characters in some way. Um, and then there's this narrator you mentioned, who's this, this an, an omniscient narrator, uh, who's narrating the book from the future and gets to remind us that this is all in the past. This is the way back then. Back then, it used to be this way, and it's a, it's those three, you know, those three perspectives and toggling between those three perspectives. Then is already a lot, and then suddenly these portals appear. But before they appear. We encounter, before we know that's what's happening, we encounter a scene that has nothing to do with the city where they live, at, at least at first, we don't think. It's in Australia. And it seems to be a housebreak scenario. There's like a character sneaking through a house and climbing out a window while a woman is asleep in her bed, if I remember right. And you think, oh, there's a housebreak. But why is this housebreak happening in Australia? And eventually, will this character come back in and become <laughs> an important figure in this novel? At once a series of those sort of flash sideways moments happens, you realize that it's not. It's just a, it's just a, another feature of this novel, that you'll you'll find yourself somewhere, almost as if you had walked through a door and poof, there you are. Um, can you when you're writing this novel? I think you said to the in this interview with the National that ran yesterday. I think you, did you say four years? Yeah. Okay. So, at one point in that four-year composition process, did you realize a there were magic doors, <laughs> b that you were going to have these flash 
sideways. They're not flashbacks. They're simultaneous. You know, these moments of simultaneous insight into other parts of the world that at first seem disconnected and then ultimately, I think, become an emblem of connection. Well, um, the most of my novels, um, I have some idea. Uh, I try to build a, a form that would contain that idea, a trial, a, one side of a conversation, self-help book. Um, and usually that idea and that form then suggest a particular language, and then I write a draft, which tends to fail like horrifically. And then that's the first year wasted. Then the second year, I try the same thing again. I tweak the form, tweak the language, tweak the thing, and I fail. Douglas Adams, the author of the Hitchhiker's Guide uh, to the Galaxy series of books, um, says that the secret of flying is throwing yourself at the ground and missing. Um, and, and that's really how I approach writing, is that I throw myself at the ground and hit, obviously, you know, smack into it again and again and again. And then eventually, you sort of stop paying attention to what you're doing, and you get distracted a little bit, and something works. And then the novel is you know, flying, hopefully. This novel, unlike all of the other previous ones, which is why this took only four years, and the, most of them have taken seven or six before that, sort of began to work on its first conception. And it began with the idea of the doors. Mm. So the doors came first. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure if I was on a Skype call with somebody or if I was like, you know, on my phone procrastinating about writing a novel and instead, you know, uh, clicking on Lahori, you know, a Lahori restaurant and then discovering that that food came from Central Asia and then, you know, Genghis Khan, you know, uh, liked that food and then, you know, 5% of human beings are descended from yeah. Genghis Khan and then, you know, the descendant of Genghis Khan is like mayor of Albuquerque, and you know, I mean, and uh, and sort of following this train of things, um, or you know, showing my parents their grandchildren, you know, using the camera on my phone, and uh, or coming to a talk like this and hopping through an airplane. But at some point, it, it I, I began to get the distinct sense, having moved back to Pakistan and being connected through a broadband connection to the rest of the world, and about once a month flying somewhere else that we actually do live in a world where these portals exist, that, that the current technological cultural reality of planet Earth for so many of us today is one in which both physical but certainly um, uh, journeys involving our attention through rectangular shaped doors, whether that's the door of an aircraft or, or your phone, your computer. I think you used the word portal first in the novel yes. to talk about the internet or yeah, a computer exactly. screen. Yeah. Because that's yeah. how I came yeah. to yeah. And so, and so, um, And so the doors came first. I was like, this is what our world feels like right now, as though these doors exist. I mean, who is this you know, uh, Sudanese migrant washed up on the shores of the beach in like, southern Italy? Um, you know, who is this Guatemalan you know, person walking down the street in New York that I've just bumped into. Um, where did they come from? They appear? Yeah. Um, who am I, yeah. who's just stepped off this plane and I'm wandering through uh, uh, Stockholm in October, which is actually freezing, whereas it was hot in Lahore, so I'm totally inappropriately dressed. And, um, you should know, by the way, that this is sometimes referred to as a portal campus. 
Is it? Of, of Runway. Well, so we're the, the right place for this book. <laughs> and the first time I came here, I, I went to our old campus downtown, and, and, I, and I walked into the space, and there were all these people I teach with in New York, but they were all here. And Magically. So, no, and, I've, and you were there, and you, and you. <laughs> and it was this, this sort of strange yeah. looking, looking glass. It was a through the looking glass, Dorothy, Wizard of Oz kind of thing. Well, I think, I think that, um, uh, that this notion that these portals um, are representative of the emotional reality of so many of us today, um, it was more real to have a book with these doors than to write a book that didn't have the doors, particularly when the subject was migration. And so, um, and so I don't really regard them as magical realism uh, or science fiction, even though if, if you say this book is magical realism or science fiction, I wouldn't disagree with either label. It probably is both. But, um, uh, uh, but for me, it is, it is uh, coming at an emotional reality um, uh, through a narrative choice that involves uh, bending the laws of physics. And um, I wanted to see what happens to the world if migration occurred, if the next two centuries of migration happened in one year. Um, and I wanted to write a novel about uh, people who have to move, uh, but not focusing on the part of their life which makes them so different from us, crossing this you know, Mediterranean in a small rubber dinghy, which we have never done, but rather the part which is, makes them just like us, which is thinking about leaving a place and then being in a different place yeah. and trying to figure out how to be themselves and who they are in that place. Because the crossing of the Mediterranean is two weeks, one week, one day. Um, traumatic, often deadly, horrific, uh, you know, not to be minimized. But the human life was the 30 years before you tried crossing the Mediterranean and the rest of your life after you crossed. That's what the life was. And so I thought by removing the part of the journey, which is what we so often tend to focus on, we could focus on the rest of it, which is who's the human being? Um, and is this human being us? Uh, and, and, and so, and so the, the, the doors you know, came in the beginning and, and enabled um, that, that to happen. And then as far as the, you know, the flash sideways, um, uh, as, as a novelist, um, one thing that I, uh, I'm very interested in is compression. Um, I mean, it takes a while to read a book, but I write pretty short books, and, and I tend to write books which, if you want to read in a day, you can. In other words, if we were to sit down around a campfire and begin talking and telling each other the story, uh, we could finish it in the course of an evening or the course of a day. And I like that length, just in terms of, not that readers will read it that way necessarily, but I like that length. There's a sort of an organic, this is, a storytelling length. Now, to have a book be that long, three, four, five, six hours of reading, um, uh, there's, the question arises is how much can you cover in that much space? And so I wanted to cover a lot in, in, in some of my books, and, and this one in particular, the, the whole world and migration and the future and what it is to be. And so the question is, um, how do you compress how do you achieve compression uh, so that a big story about the whole world can come across in three or four hours of reading? Uh, I mean, it's formatted as 200 plus 
pages, it could easily be formatted 150 if you have dense pages. It's not a long, it's a very short book. And so the same way that you know, a CD works by taking a curve and slicing it into little steps. And so the infinite points on the curve become a limited number of things. And we reconstruct those in our heads into a curve. And so we're able to, you know, or our machine does it uh, and, and decompresses the CD into music again. Um, and similarly, you know, impressionistic uh, painting takes a number of, you know, uh, a pointillist painting takes a number of dots. And then we decompress that communication into a full image of something. And so in this novel, what I did was, I tried to do was, there were just you know, a dozen or so dots. We have Seyed and Nadia stories, and we have a few little pieces of the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. and, and my hope was that in those little snippets, that that would have enough resonance inside the reader, that the reader can imagine this world not just geographically and how it's changing geographically, but also in the different you know, natures of migration. Those who are terrified of migrants coming, those who think of themselves as migrants, those who didn't think of themselves as migrants and now do, those who went and regretted, those who wish to go but can't. The pleasures and the dangers. All of that. And so, so the, moment, the moment very late in the novel where the two old men meet in Amsterdam yeah. and, and then there's this little love story that's a, this, the size of you know, half a paragraph. Yes. Exactly, and, and so, and so in, it, it is, um, it is a, an attempt to write, in a way, a very big book, small. Um, and, those, and those snippets were, were a big part of it. I mean, you've actually given me um, a, a different ending point for my part of this conversation. And then I'd like to see if you'll read for us a little bit out of the book. And then there are a lot of people here, I think, who want to ask you some questions. So I'm going to wrap my part up. Uh, I had thought about this book being about the novel as a portal, and that, that the many portals that you name, the internet, the record player, the, the drugs that they use, the you know, death at some point, you know, the, these are all portals, or they're referred to in that same kind of vocabulary in ways that emphasize that the dangers and the pleasures and the unknown, sort of the... You don't know what you're going to find on the other side. And sometimes it's good. Sometimes your life is better for it. And on, sometimes it's not. Uh, and I had thought about the novel as a portal then, sort of like Harry Potter. We dip into the book and fall in, and there we are inside, like Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life or something. Uh, just the characters can't see us. But I'm also thinking about your other central metaphor of migration and that we're all migrants through time, and thinking about the novel as a migrant experience, and that the novel actually allows us to migrate through. Uh, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think you know, it's, 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 that, um, it's that you know, we, we have often thought of migration as something about moving between places, as geographic migration, right? That many of you will not be from Abu Dhabi, and you've, you're here through a series of movements. Geographic movements, and and so many of our lives are made up of geographic movements. Although, you know, many people, perhaps most people on Earth, live most of their lives quite close to the place where they were born. But still, um, particularly now that billions are moving from the countryside to the cities in Asia and elsewhere, um, geographic migration is, is increasingly the story of almost everybody's life, from so many people's lives. Um, but we can still think, oh, well, I didn't do moving that way, or I haven't moved, or I've always lived in the same place. But I think um, the way that human beings live, or the way we perceive ourselves as living, is, is you know, 
proceeding through a series of moments. Um, each instant gives birth to the next instant, gives birth to the next instant, gives birth to the next instant. And so um, what happens is that each moment actually is a portal into the moment after that. And so um, in the course of an hour, you have actually moved through. And the place where you were is gone, just as you know, the horror of 1974 is gone for me or California of 1980, where I lived, is gone for me, or New York of 2001 is gone for me, and sadly for all of us. Um, I think that experience of each moment being a door that we step in through continuously, and in fact, that being the fundamental nature and, and uh, circumstance of human life, um, was, was essential. And so you do have this blurring of these two things, as you just said, which is, the notion of all of us migrating geographically and all of us migrating through time. And migrating through our own, our own experiences, yes. our own identity. Yeah, and, and, and in that sense, I mean, to me, the thing which is, which is quite um, useful from that is um, if we are all migrating in this way, if each of us is, uh, as in, in my last novel, uh, how to get filtration rising in Asia, there's a, there's a whole series of, there's a passage towards the end where um, novel talks about the notion that we're all refugees from our childhood, that um, everybody is a refugee. You know, the people I we played that with. that's there. You yeah. know, the people nice. we played with, yeah. the, the, the ice cream truck we went yeah. to, the school playground, the, they don't exist anymore. They've disappeared from planet Earth. They are no longer there. Um, and, and in that sense, uh, since this is true for everyone, this, no, this nature of being a refugee from where we started, um, what that suggests is we should be much more able to see in others who have moved or become refugees a reflection of ourselves. That it isn't that this is some stranger come into my domain who is threatening to me and these people are here, they're different from what I am. But instead, it's that actually there's something a lot like me about these people. And if we can begin with that starting yeah. point, the kinds of conversations we can have about politics and about identity feel very different. Um, and so that, for me, is, 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 the, is the potential of, of this you know, idea of us always passing through time and doors. Terrific. I wonder, would you just um, pick a, a, yeah. a couple paragraphs from this to read? And then we'll pepper you with some mm. questions from very lovely yes. audience. Um, actually, people. I was going to read something else, but I, I might read something differently now. Uh, I'll, I'll, read, I'll read two things. Have we got like five, yeah. eight? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I'll, I'll read to the beginning of the book, the first couple of pages, just because many of you haven't read it. And so this will give you a sense of what it sounds like and how it begins and how Sayyid and Nadia meet. Uh, and also just how the novel works. In a city swollen by refugees, but still mostly at peace, or at least not yet openly at war, a young man met a young woman in a classroom and did not speak to her for many days. His name was Sayyid and her name was Nadia and he had a beard, not a full beard, more a studiously maintained stubble. And she was always clad from the tips of her toes to the bottom of her jugular notch in a flowing black robe. 
Back then, people continued to enjoy the luxury of wearing more or less what they wanted to wear, clothing and hair-wise, within certain bounds, of course. And so these choices meant something. It might seem odd that in cities teetering at the edge of the abyss, young people still go to class, in this case, an evening class on corporate identity and product branding. But that is the way of things, with cities as with life. For one moment, we are pottering about our errands as usual, and the next we are dying. And our eternally impending ending does not put a stop to our transient beginnings and middles until the instant when it does. Said noticed that Nadia had a beauty mark on her neck, a tawny oval that sometimes, rarely but not never, moved with her pulse. Not long after noticing this, Said spoke to Nadia for the first time. Their city had yet to experience any major fighting, just some shootings and the odd car bombing, felt in one's chest cavity as a subsonic vibration like those emitted by large loudspeakers at music concerts and say that Nadia had packed up their books and were leaving class. In the stairwell, he turned to her and said, listen, would you like to have a coffee? And after a brief pause added to make it seem less forward given her conservative attire in the cafeteria. Nadia looked him in the eye. You don't say your evening prayers, she asked. Said conjured up his most endearing grin. Not always, sadly. Her expression did not change. So he persevered, clinging to his grin with the mounting desperation of a doomed rock climber. I think it's personal. Each of us has his own way or her own way. Nobody's perfect. And in any case, she interrupted him. I don't pray, she said. She continued to gaze at him steadily. Then she said, maybe another time. He watched as she walked out to the student parking area. And there, instead of covering her head with a black cloth, as he expected, she donned a black motorcycle helmet that had been locked to a scuffed-up 100-ish cc trail bike, snapped down her visor, straddled her ride, and rode off, disappearing with a controlled rumble into the gathering dusk. So that's how they meet these two people. And um, they begin to become interested in each other. And, and around them, the city starts to collapse. And so there's a dramatic nature to their romance, which is um, you know, the romance of two people who've met and are uh, uh, going somewhere else in a week, uh, or two people who um, have met and belong to different clans, or two people um, who have met in situations that suggest that uh, their romance is doomed. There's, a, there's an entire romance to being romantic in circumstances that are so dramatic. Um, and they partake of that, but also suffer from that. Um, I wanted to read to you uh, one other passage, which is just what it's like to go through one of these doors. Um, and then I want to read you one final passage after that, which is uh, one of the asides that Brian was um, talking about. But I think I like aside better than flash sideways. I think flash sideways <laughs> comes from the TV show Lost. I think that's where that a flash sideways. Yeah, I think they called those flash sideways. Yeah, so it is a yeah, bit of both. So this is what it was. Um, this is what it's like to go through one of the doors. This is the first time they go through one. It was said in those in those days that the passage was both like dying and like being born. 
And indeed, Nadia experienced a kind of extinguishing as she entered the blackness, and a gasping struggle as she fought to exit it. And she felt cold and bruised and damp as she lay on the, on the floor of the room at the other side, trembling and too spent at first to stand. And she thought, while she strained to fill her lungs, that this dampness must be her own sweat. Said was emerging, and Nadia crawled forward to give him space. And as she did so, she noticed the sinks and mirrors for the first time, the tiles on the floor, the stalls behind her, all the doors of which, save one, were normal doors, all but the one through which she had come, and through which Said was now coming, which was black. And she understood that she was in the toilet of some public place. And she listened intently, but it was silent, the only noise emanating from her, from her breathing, and from Said, his quiet grunts like those of a man exercising or having sex. They embraced without getting to their feet, and she cradled him, for he was still weak. And when they were strong enough, they rose. And she saw Said pivot back to the door, as though he wished maybe to reverse course and return through it. And she stood beside him without speaking, and he was motionless for a while. But then he strode forward, and they made their way outside and found themselves between two low buildings, perceiving a sound like a shell held to their ears and feeling a cold breeze on their faces and smelling brine in the air. And they looked and saw a stretch of sand and low gray waves coming in, and it seemed miraculous, although it was not a miracle. They were merely on a beach. And so they arrive on a Greek island, um, like so many people these days have been arriving on Greek islands. And, uh, and the next phase of their life um, begins. And of course, people in the place where they've come to are are shocked and uh, 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 some of them pretty upset uh, that they are there. I want to give you one last passage, which is um, which is a little bit about which one of these asides. Um, they have said the Nadia are in in Marin, north of San Francisco, in California, and uh, many of the places in this novel. It's interesting just to mention it. Um, so the novel is not autobiographical. I mean, I, I have not ventured to these doors like, say, the Nadia and emerged in these places and had these life experiences um, in that sense. Uh, although autobiography is a very strange term when you talk about fiction. But, it, but the narrative or plot of this novel does not correspond literally to the plot of my life. But one of the ways in which this novel is autobiographical is it's sort of geographically autobiographical brings together many places in which I have spent time, including uh, Amsterdam and, and Greece and uh, uh, London and, and the Bay Area and California and a place like Lahore. And so this um, uh, aside takes place in, in, in Palo Alto, uh, about an hour's drive south of Marin, where Seda Nadia are, and involves a, an old woman um, and what she experiences as all this is happening. Not far to the south, in the town of Palo Alto, lived an old woman who had lived in the same house her whole life. Her parents had brought her to this house when she was born, and her mother had passed on there when she was a teenager, and her father when she was in her 20s, and her husband had joined her there, and her two children had grown up in this house, and she had lived alone with them when she divorced, and later with her second husband, their stepfather, and her children had moved off to college and not returned, and her second husband had died two years ago. And throughout this time, she had never moved. Traveled, yes, but never moved. And yet it seemed the world had moved, 
and she barely recognized the town that existed outside her property. The old woman had become a rich woman on paper, the house now worth a fortune, and her children were always pestering her to sell it, saying she didn't need all that space. But she told them to be patient. It would be theirs when she died, which wouldn't be long now. And she said this kindly, to sharpen the bite of it, and to remind them how much they were motivated by money, money they spent without having, which she had never done, always saving for a rainy day, even if only a little. One of her granddaughters went to the great university nearby, a university that had gone from being a local secret to among the world's most famous in the space of the old woman's lifetime. This granddaughter came to see her, often as much as once a week. She was the only one of the old woman's descendants who did this, and the old woman adored her, and also sometimes felt baffled by her. Looking at her granddaughter, she thought she saw what she would have looked like had she been born in China, for the granddaughter had features of the old woman, and yet looked to the old woman overall, more or less, but mostly more, Chinese. There was a rise that led up to the old woman's street, and when she was a little girl, the old woman used to push her bike up and then get on and zoom back down without pedaling, bikes being heavy in those days and hard to take uphill, especially when you were small, as she was then, and your bike too big, as hers had been. She had liked to see how far she could glide without stopping, flashing through the intersections, ready to brake, but not overly ready, because there had been a lot less traffic, at least as far as she could remember. She had always had carp in a mossy pond in the back of her house, carp that her granddaughter called goldfish. And she had known the names of almost everyone on her street, and most had been there a long time. They were old California, from families that were California families. But over the years, they had changed more and more rapidly, and now she knew none of them and saw no reason to make the effort. For people bought and sold houses the way they bought and sold stocks. And every year, someone was moving out and someone was moving in. And now all these doors from who knows where were opening, and all sorts of strange people were around, people who looked more at home than she was, even the homeless ones who spoke no English. Maybe more at home, maybe because they were younger. And when she went out, it seemed to her that she too had migrated, that everyone migrates, even if we stay in the same houses our whole lives, because we can't help it. We are all migrants through time. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyu.org nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute